Welcome to Your Parenting is Showing, a podcast about what happens when your nice, smooth, professional front is upended by your parenting backstage in pandemic time. Where two so-called experts bring their friends on to talk about their own pandemic parenting wins and blunders, highs and lows, or as we used to say when our kids were little, popsicles and poopsicles. I'm Ellen. I'm a child psychologist in Boston. And I'm Molly, a local church pastor in Berkeley, California. And together we wrote a parenting book aiming to blend the best of child psychological science with a progressive Christian wisdom. To guide our parenting on both the easy days and the really, really messy ones, from toddler to teen and beyond. Hey everybody, we're back with a new episode of Your Parenting is Showing, the podcast for people soldiering through month 13, 14, whenever we get this podcast edited up of a pandemic month, million and 75th. Um, we, are, we are both so excited to have Brittany Walker Pettigrew here with us today, who I'm going to introduce in a sec, but not before I say happy birthday to Ellen, who turns 44 today, if you can believe it. Ellen, so glad to get ever older with you. This and is the best way to spend birthday. my birthday. And hope people treat you like a queen today. Oh, um, thanks. Yay. Back to Brittany. I know Brittany because <laughs> she goes to my church. I am so yay. lucky to share a church with Brittany Walker Pettigrew <laughs> and her fantabulous, beautiful family. Brittany is a social worker and now a manager working in child welfare for the last 25 years here in Oakland and the East Bay. She has three children of her own, one by adoption and two by birth. And she deals with, thank God, not in her own family, but in the family she works with, some of the most traumatized, traumatizing situations she has for decades. And she does it with such wisdom, grace, aplomb, good cheer, and hope for humanity that it just stuns me. And every once in a while, I just need to go for a walk with Brittany or have lunch with her and say, please restore my faith in humanity. <laughs> and she does it, like in the space of an hour. So, <laughs> so Brittany, we're so excited you're here with us today to restore all of our faith in humanity. Ah, I'm so happy to be here. Yay. So, uh, sort of like big, huge opening question. What's the pandemic been like for you? Mm -hmm. Ooh, child. Uh, <laughs> it's been, um, it's been really surreal. I mean, I think everybody says that, right. Um, mm. I mean, who knew? Um, and I work, so, you know, the children went home from school and interestingly enough, my son was sick the very last day of school because he had a cold and normally I would send my kids to school with a cold because they got it at school. So um, I didn't because they were saying, <laughs> don't do that. Um, right. And then he was gone for the last day when they announced to all of his classmates oh. that they weren't coming back. And then a few days later, he was like, mom, I really feel like I could go back now. It's okay. Oh. And I was like, no, nobody's there. Nobody's there. Right. So it was just a really surreal time and just figuring it out. And we had to totally reset like everything about parenting and everything mm. about our lives. Um, yeah. And because I, husband my husband and I both work yeah. Yeah, the same job. So we were leaving the house every day and they were going to school right. at home. And luckily they are so mature and together. Mm -hmm. I mean, not that that gets them to a hundred percent. I mean, they had to no, parent but themselves it means a lot Yeah, that's right. Right. And I had to readjust my expectations because, you know, I'm like a perfectionist overachiever. Like, you know, mm -hmm. I was, the, if they had the apps that you have now to check your grades regularly, I would have been a mess as a student. <laughs> and, <laughs> refresh, 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 refresh. refresh. Mm -hmm. Everybody can relax now. I'm you know? <laughs> I had to really reset that. Like, don't look at that thing at all. The grades are not relevant right now. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Academics aren't the center right now. You know. Absolutely. Has it gotten easier or harder? Because I feel like that got harder and harder for me. That was, I felt like that was sort of easy for me to do in the very beginning when I was like, okay, 
it's going to be a couple months or weeks. And then as time went on and now we're into a whole other academic year, I don't know. I feel like it's been a struggle for me to keep readjusting. I would say that it's a little bit of both. Like I mm-hmm. feel like it, it was, I took a lot of intentionality for me to do it in the beginning. So that part is a little bit easier. It's just, um, you know, so I'm like used to resetting myself. Like I'm used to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but in that way, it's not easy. It's exhausting. It's exhausting to constantly like reconvince yourself that the whole world is shut down. But then mm-hmm. now it's not right. Like some schools, right? Yeah, back. we're renegotiating everything, and it's it's a whole new gray area, and it's exhausting because mm-hmm. we we put all that energy. You know, so much energy goes into decision making and risk assessment, and optimizing for our kids and our families, and then you know we sort of figure that out 1.0 and now we're in this new gray area and there's so much to figure out again. And it's, it's really rough. Um, and with the kids, my kids school, yeah. it's also like the, it's not just the impact on my kids. Cause I know that I have enough, you know, power and privilege and resources to help mitigate the losses, but yeah. other kids don't. And so yeah, advocating right. for the kids at my kids school who don't have that. It's, I wanted I wanted to ask you about that because you're African American, you're raising African American children. Um, there's been a lot of conversation without a lot of answers this year about how the pandemic has exacerbated um, inequality in education um, mm-hmm. and racial inequality in education. How you know do do you have any insights about that for your own family or for other families? You know what what's your prayer about that or what's your fight? You know what's your what's your strongly worded email about that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so Where's many strongly worded emails. Well, like, so, you? I mean, there's lots of information about it. What I, um, what I worry about the most is um, that every, even though everyone's saying like, we're all shut down, it's, it is not the same. Um, no. that, Education has been such a a form of salvation for my ancestors. The denial of education was so impactful. Um, My dad and my mom having access, my my grandparents on my mother's side having access to education meant that I had a totally different life. So Mm. while the nation is having a conversation about the value of a college degree, I know for a fact that the reason I have the resilience I have now is because I came from college-educated parents who took the risk to do that. My dad in particular is a first-generation college graduate, and our lives are different because they took the risk to do it. So I get really triggered by the conversation of like, what's the value of a college degree and mm-hmm. all that because mm-hmm. it is meant like it's easy for you white people to actually <laughs> ask that as a question, an <laughs> academic question about what the value question. and is right. it worth it. And it's getting more and more expensive now, right? So it is a legit question. Like I've always wanted to get a PhD, but I'm not going to get one because do I want to incur like six figure debt so that people can call me Dr. Walker Pettigrew? I really want to be called that, by the way. I know. <laughs> How about if I can start calling you, can call Dr. you Dr. Dr. Walker Pettigrew? <laughs> 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 somebody wants you, to confer an honorary degree, I will still give you, you however, an honorary degree on you. Hun, you have done all the field ed work. You put in the time. I just, I'm going to start calling yeah, you doctor. Like, I don't have to, but I don't have to, like, I'm not a tenure track professor. I'm not, I don't need to invest in that. But like that, that kind of education, I mean, that education does have different weight and different meaning and the denial of access to it has different weight and different meaning. And so mm. when we're having conversations, even about my children, mm-hmm. like I get right or wrong, I get a lot of credibility because I have a master's degree. I get a lot of credibility because I have a college degree. Mm-hmm. And that's just handed to me unearned. I mean, I earned those degrees, but the mm-hmm. fact that somebody's decided I'm wiser and smarter and somehow more worthy and be- therefore more valued. Yeah. Subjective. Yeah. It's not really so about the you. impact of my children losing a year of education. Um, and they didn't lose a year of education. Like, let's be clear. My teach, my kids' teachers were like teaching, right? The, the whole time. Um, I'm doing double duty. But losing a year of traditional in-person education, um, that 
it does have a different impact for them as black children than it does for other children. Um, mm -hmm. It has a different impact for them as black children in East Oakland um, than it does for other children. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit fake in the funk when I say like I'm centering other things and academics aren't important. Like there's a piece, there's a piece of me that truly does believe that, but there's a reality that like, will my children's time be evaluated with the same compassion yes. as other children? Yes. I mean, right now they are like, you know, fifth and eighth grade. Nobody's looking at eighth grade transcripts right now and going like, oh, it's too bad she had that rough year in eighth grade. Like nobody mm -hmm. looks at that, mm -hmm. right? They're not fortunately juniors and seniors in high school with a big asterisk on it. So they might bounce back from that, but still yeah. are people looking back and saying, you know, so that my yeah. fear is that- I've, I've been seeing it. So I've been seeing ahead, it too in the debate about, you know, SAT scores, like, well, schools are making SAT scores optional. Well, that's not necessarily helpful if they're optional, because then how is that perceived if, you know, a, a white student over here chooses not to submit scores? How's that perceived compared to a black student who chooses not to submit scores or one then who chooses even, to submit or not submit? I mean, it's just more confusion. Yeah, there's yeah. just more confusion and and really maybe room for bias in an already biased and unequal system. Well, it's funny you raised the SAT thing because I, I got stories, but I tell you that I, <laughs> I never had, um, I never, my best SAT score was 980 out of 1600, um, which is nobody's, it doesn't meet any no measure of your actual intelligence or knowledge base. Yeah. 980. It was first it was 910. I took it three times and the best score I got was 980. That was the best mm -hmm. I ever got. And um, I knew that. And I also, the best GPA I ever got was 3.8 because I was denied access to AP classes. I was, um, I was also told that I had to pay for credit. So I then went on this like one woman boycott in high school that like, if I'm supposed to have a free and appropriate public education and it's my constitutional right, I shouldn't have to pay to get credit through an AP class. Mm -hmm. um, of course, as soon as I was a freshman in college, I had regrets because everybody else was entering 12 units ahead of me. So yeah, it took me four years and a quarter to graduate from UCLA. Um, whereas all the other kids started out with their first quarter down. And so that just ended up costing me more money and more time. Yeah, just delayed it. And considering that when I started um, school um, and when I ended school, my last quarter cost me three times as much as my first quarter. So, oh. I mean, real economic. Just because of inflation um, in higher ed. Because of inflation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, when I started, it was like $400 a quarter. And then when I finished, it was 1200 It was almost $1,300 a quarter. Wow. And so I had to pay $1,300 for a quarter that had I been granted access in um, high, school high school to AP classes, I would not have even had to take. And then you're paying that back with capitalized interest, right? Over right. the lifetime of the loan. I didn't have loans. Is, I was fortunate that, that oh, in that way. But, so many but I did do. also have to take like pay for remedial classes, like for the inequitable education I got, I got put in like remedial English at UCLA. I got put in remedial math at UCLA. And that's yeah, true. and so I don't I know why that's shocking. Like, why does any racism shock me? <laughs> but, <laughs> but that shocks me, you know, because mm -hmm. you're you. Yeah, and and but I think right. that so... speaks to to how like we start out with these seemingly small incremental sort of deltas in in access or in bias or whatever, and how they how they you know grow of grow exponentially over time, you know, how they, how the interest on that initial injury gets capitalized over time. And, you know, I, I obviously don't know what's happening in every school system. I really know my, only know my own and what I've read about, but it sort of seems like there's a lot of grace for a lot of students this year. My, and my worry is that, and you're sort of alluding to this, when we sort of get back to normal, all of a sudden, when they're evaluating how kids did. Like I sort of think of it, you know, when trees have a bad year, you can read it in the rings. Once you've mm -hmm. cut the tree down, like, oh, that was a drought year. That was a good year. And, you know, if you sort of like could take a cross section of our kids, you'll see that this, this was a drought year for 
all of them, but some of them had irrigation systems, right? And you can't know that. And so Mm -hmm. unconscious bias, systemic racism is going to come more into play when this is all over, when when, when teachers and administrators are evaluating how kids did and where to put them and whether they should get access to these AP classes or how they should be tracked through high school. And really what I'm thinking about, your analogy is so perfect because what I'm thinking about is we talk a lot about resiliency in children and building resiliency. And, but there's only a certain kind of metric of resiliency that's respected, right? It's do our kids bounce back to performing in these ways that we have decided, like do our kids bounce Mm -hmm. back to the other in-person schools so they're getting A's without Mm -hmm. taking into consideration the injury caused by the whole world shutting down and how everyone has adapted. Right. You know? And so, um, so the metric by which we measure or not, um, you know, my kids are bouncing back or other kids are bouncing back is still the old racist metric from before, which is, do you have A's? Yes, yes, yes. And it's, it's, it's seemingly objective, but it, it masks so much subjectivity in that. And Ellen right. actually just wrote a great piece for um, public radio or BWBR in mm-hmm. Boston about now that we're getting back to school, why is the conversation all about academic success? Like instantly, why are we not, making meaning of this moment? Why are we not, you know, sort of reaping the emotional intelligence or the resilience? Why are we not? Well, Ellen, you, you wrote it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, there's that piece, but I think, well, I feel like, you know, I was trying to cram all of these thoughts into the 80 to 60 (laughs) word limit. And I feel like I should have just caught up. Let's pause for a moment. Let's pause for a moment at the fact that this false sense of urgency that you, this myth of scarcity that you only had 850 words to try to capture this big, big thing. (laughs) That is fucked up. Okay. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Can you write oh, about the You should not have to do that. <laughs> it was. It was like, can you write about kids going back to school in 850 words? And I was like, oh, I want to talk about racism. I want to talk about mental health. I want to talk about all these things. Yeah. yeah well, I was going to say, I should have just called you up because you could put it in 850 words. But yeah, there's that piece of it. <laughs> there's that piece of it. But but there's another piece that I, I, I maybe wish I'd gotten clearer, because I think what you're also saying, Brittany, is that this grace we're giving kids, quote unquote, grace to ease up on the gas or to, to pull back and not value the grades so much impacts our kids so differently because the whole structure on which it's built is a mess, right? And it's, and it's racist and it's unequal and it's so that, so sure, give my kids the grace to pull back from an AP class, but what's the grace being given to the kid who was not in AP classes, who doesn't have a computer, who's not getting an education this year, like, oh, their grades don't matter and your grades don't matter, but then you're going to pick up right where we left off, where one's up here and one's down there. And that's my, my, my concern about this race to get back to normal is like, well, and no, I don't want to get back to normal. I don't want to get really back to normal. clear is that it's a period that expires, right? So that would suggest also that we're no longer going to offer grace once this magical expiration date has occurred. So get it together and get back to pulling mm-hmm. yourself up by the bootstraps, youngin. And that yes. is really, yeah. and so let me also just say like one of the things that I've become aware of and I would say I would say apologetically that I sound like a crazy conspiracy theorist, but it's a conspiracy. So there. Um, but like <laughs> at my house, we pay for all the internet. We pay for like the highest thing you can get. We call AT and T every few months, and we're like, "Hey, give us the highest thing," and they do whatever machinations they do and profess to give us the highest thing, and it is still unreliable. Mm-hmm. My kids still, we cannot, I can't work from home, even if I want to. I do one day a week through a lot of peril, but our internet is unstable and we have four hotspots in this house. So in addition to that, between the four, each of us has a hotspot and the baseline internet, we are constantly, I'm always in step one with my internet (laughs) to quote a 12 step thing. And so, I mean, it's, it's really hard. And so, and, and other communities are not experiencing this. Yeah. And so what I can't help but think is that even at its base, like there are kids in my son's class who's just the Internet just cuts out mm-hmm. and other kids are not experiencing this. And I think that that is an infrastructure issue related yes. to this community 
which is yeah. part of a larger problem of, of not investing in this community, of viewing this community as disposable, as viewing this community as a place yeah. where you can put your polluting factory, you can put your irresponsible yep. housing development, yep. you can put yep. your, or whatever, Crappy all internet. the supply holes, yeah. the everything. Yeah. And, the, and you don't have to build the inf internet infrastructure, right? So even though my child shows up to school every day, Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. has for the last year, best attendance, no tardies has ever had in their entire yeah. career. Yeah, yeah. It still has, it's, they still miss school. Because it's like artificial ADD, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, even if they are there and committed, if they're blipping out every, you know, two minutes, it's like, when do you just throw up your hands right. and give up? Right. Like, I mean, I had to give a presentation at work and my internet would not allow me to join. I literally yeah. cut out. And if it weren't for the fact that I had built in redundancy in my team and the team who normally mm -hmm. doesn't leave the presentation just gave the whole thing, yeah. I, I was out for 15 minutes, the length of time. Yeah. So it was just, I mean, that's, I feel like that is like, you know, that's just part and parcel of like, and then they go back to the physical schoolhouse and the, and it's the same thing there, right? Like my kid's school is one of the schools that had lead pipes that had to shut down all the water fountains because, you know, they- It was delivering lead directly into your children's bodies. Wow. Right. Exactly. Wow. So, I mean, you just say what I'm saying. It's like- mm -hmm. Come on, oh, Joe Biden. Joe Biden wants to do something about all this. We, Come on. We, right. we missed, I feel like we missed so many opportunities over the past year to even start making things right. You know, like, I mean, my kids, I thought that as soon as my kids came home with laptops, like on day two of remote schooling from the school, and I wanted to be like, we don't need these laptops. We have a million laptops. Like, we, we don't need these laptops. How come my kids are getting laptops to come home? And then the kids that I work with at work who don't have any computers at home are not getting laptops. Like this just feels like from the very beginning, we've missed so many opportunities to make things better. Um, and now we're going back to normal and picking up where we left off. Um, and we haven't corrected these inequities and we're just gonna keep exacerbating them. And it's so frustrating. So, Brittany, we've talked a lot at church this year about how apocalypse means revealing. It doesn't It doesn't mean, you know, the earth's blowing up and we're all getting thrown into a lake of fire, separated, you know, the sheep from the goats. It's really about revealing. And um, this pandemic has revealed a lot about our priorities and our and our inequities and, and everything, you know, how interconnected we are. And then the concurrent, you know, racial pandemic, which, you know, long predates this four, 500 years, thousands of years. We've always, we've always scapegoated people based on skin color. Um, in every, you know, since, since our skin colors diverged, um, what, what are you hopeful that this revealing will lead to us being able to acknowledge the wound, dress the wound appropriately and heal? Um, are you unhopeful? I also want to tell our listeners that um, after the 2016 election, you participated in a really amazing um, program linking, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong because I forget all the details, West Coast urban elites. I don't think they were all black, but I think. No, they were. I was. No, <laughs> with <sure> not. <laughs> Southern, with Southern conservative women to build bridges and build friendships. And you have taught me a lot about kind of repairing the breach, you know, something we've also talked about, talked at church about, um, and not, and not giving into the forces that, you know, these invisible, invisible, invisible forces that are so polarizing that just exacerbate the problems in our country. So what about, yeah, are so you hopeful? What have you learned? I am. Yeah. And that project did help me. It, it, well, what it did was give me a lot of depth and nuance. First of all, that was big. Cause, um, you know, fortunately I have a family that's very diverse. So I had people who I love who have different politics than me. Um, and I, so I have exposure to diversity in that way, but there are people who have a fairly homogeneous 
community and family. And some of the women that I was talking to have that experience. And it was very interesting to hear from their lens, like, you know, um, like we talked a lot about, and we were quick to call, and by we, I mean royal we, um, quick to call, um, you know, a Trump supporter a racist, because how could you not, you know? And, you know, I remember this one woman was like, look, my granny, my grandpa, he was a racist. Like he was a card carrying, torch carrying, you know, like mm-hmm. that guy. Um, and my father didn't want us to be around that. So we moved and we lived a different life and we, um, you know, did a lot of service through church and stuff. And yet she still has these very, um, she had these beliefs and these things that had racist impact. Um, and really divorcing intent from impact was really had to be, has to be a big part of the conversation Mm. because what people get really turned off by is being called something they never intended to be, you know? And when we say um, a lot of people are running around talking about assuming positive intent, but they don't live that life. They Mm -hmm. don't live that life. They're not at all curious about why somebody would do something so hurtful. Somebody who says that they're not, racist, you know, but would do something with racist impact. You know, I think the vast majority of people actually do mean well and think they're doing their best. Um, And we all, when it gets down to it, wanted the same things. We want safety in our communities. We want security for our families. We want to be able to assure the safety and security of our families for generations to come. We all wanted the same things. We just do it differently, Mm -hmm. wanted to go about it differently and how we wanted to go about it was based on our personal experiences. So until you get curious about what someone's lived experience is, mm-hmm. you can't understand why they have the lens they have. And my prayer is just that people get just as curious about me as I am about them. Because mm-hmm. I, I tell you what gets tired is when I'm the only person asking, mm-hmm. you know, when yeah. everyone else yeah. is like, yeah, talk to the hand and you're just a dumb libtard or whatever they, you know, all the words that people say, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or on the, no on the, on the liberal side, that we just decided that, you know, yeah, that yeah. we don't get curious about anyone else and that we so hold, the, maintain the higher ground on righteousness like that. Mm-hmm. We, yeah. we have to get curious yeah. about other people's experiences. And if we do not get curious, we will never heal the divide because you will never see yourself in them because you are not your brother's keeper. You are your brother. Mm. Oh, you are not your sister's keeper. You are your sister. We are oh, each other's siblings. We are the siblings. We are not the We siblings. are. We are. That's so beautiful. And that's the part. We don't want to look into it because we don't want to see ourselves in something that we hate. That's, yeah. that's the scapegoating mechanism. It's like, look, get the sin as far from me as possible. I'm going to take my sin and put it onto the goat, send the goat into the wilderness so I don't have to experience that as something connected to me, to my person. Mm-hmm. Um, I just finished reading Jonathan Hates the Righteous Mind. I don't know if you've read it, Brittany, but he wrote it like eight years ago and it's all, it's all the work you've done. I mean, it's, he's a moral psychologist and he sort of goes, he goes many thousands of years back in time to like, you know, early humans and how we develop our, our value systems. And he named that curiosity act like becoming curious actually gives you a dopamine hit. He Mm -hmm. named curiosity as a way to build bridges. And of course it has to be both sides being curious about the other. It doesn't Mm work. Um, But I love that, that curiosity gives you a dopamine hit and this idea of curiosity as a spiritual practice that you can cultivate to really mm-hmm. change change your own mind, change your own posture, heal your own soul, liberate yourself from anger or self-righteousness. Well, one thing I've been really aware of too is the way that, um, the way that these experiences live in us. Like that mm-hmm. was something that I, I remember um, having a conversation with the Alabama women about welfare fraud and their view that welfare fraud was super widespread, you know, mm-hmm. and then, and that, you know, and this is why we can't have big government and this is why government can't be trusted and da, 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 da. And I say as a government employee, they're not 100% wrong about that, but they're saying about. Right. <laughs> there's some things we do not get right as a government yeah, program. Absolutely. Like, administering things. Like, I understand theoretically what they're talking about. That said, um, 
you know, in the conversation, like one of the things they were talking about was this widespread and everybody's on the take and it, it fosters dependency and stuff like that. And I kept thinking like, where in your experience are you seeing that? Because all these California women, some of them who had been consumers using um, public benefits before, and in my work, I've never seen people who are like, I'm going to be on the government teat forever. Like mm -hmm. that's, I'm not seeing that. Um, they, where I asked them, where are you seeing this? And every one of them had like a member of their family that had proudly proclaimed it. Mm -hmm. And if I just, without judgment, yeah. if I could just say like, oh, that's why they think it's everywhere because in their experience, it, mm -hmm. it, there's literally no one yeah. in every one of their families. And so like, okay, now if I make room for two things to be true simultaneously, that you have this experience that it is rather ubiquitous in your, in your you know, it's everywhere in your experience. And in my experience, it is not, you know, how do we make room for both these things? Mm -hmm. I know when I've hit something important, when people are like, well, what do we do now? Right. Because now uh, we're not so assured about the future. Now is yeah. when we, that's the yeah. moment when you stop and be like, okay, we're mm. here. We have met at the crossroads. That creates now we can move forward because you don't know all the answers. You can't mm -hmm. know all the answers. Mm -hmm. That's a moment of possibility and imagining. Yeah, so, yeah. And I think too, like that tendency, well, do we make policy or decisions or proclamations based on the, even if it's a, a significant number of outliers who, you know, are taking advantage or whatever it might be, like, ca can we open ourselves up to all that other experience of all the people who are not doing that and, and not just base our decisions on that one extreme and that curiosity but also, about other people and ourselves too, right? I think what I was really connecting to um, also was the visceral reaction that they experienced seeing someone that they love proclaim this thing that was so contrary to their own values mm. that you would not work hard and find your own independence that they they're somewhere in them. They had a visceral reaction to it, um, a visceral resistance to it. And that is what's staying with them. That is what's mm -hmm. motivating them. And yeah. we all have those visceral experiences that live with us. And so I got really clear, like there has to be new viscera, like there has mm -hmm. to be a new viscera around like, um, like Ooh, new positive, right? Like, like the moment, right? The moment when they're cuts. like, oh, we're like, what do we do now? That's positive viscera. We made, we came up with a proposal together about how to deal with a problem that was so intractable, what to do about Confederate monuments. And the moment of flow that we had as a result of that, Whoa. that's what I mean, but like that's new viscera. Mm. And so when you, so like, I feel like, when you, um, when you, so I've been reading um, Resma Menachem's book, My Grandmother's oh. Hands. Mm -hmm. He's talking about, um, you know, trauma that lives in the body and white mm. body supremacy and how white body supremacy um, invented in 1619 with the invention of race and then spread pretty much throughout the world, but especially throughout the United States mm -hmm. um, and the Americas. And how we are all afflicted by it and how the trauma that was visited upon white people by other white people before they started visiting it upon Africans and mm. indigenous people um, still lives in us and has been passed down from generation to generation. And until we heal that, yeah. right? Until we heal that. And as he says, metabolize that trauma, we will continue to perpetuate it and hand it down to others. And I remember being told this image one time, like imagine yourself standing like on top of a pedestal or something and all the way to the horizon, you can see all the way to the horizon, um, people in lines of two and all the way back as far as you can see, somebody's holding baggage and they turn around and they give it to the person in front of them and they in turn mm -hmm. turn around and give it to the person in front of them. Yeah. And, it, and this cycle continues all the way until your parents hand it to you right in front of you is your childhood self and your parents take those bags and hand it to you as a child and the child turns around and offers it to you. And the moment we're in right now is do we take the bags or do we say, no, thank you. Mm -hmm. so, and like the service that those bags served all those people carrying it yeah. forward, yeah. like that was the survival behavior that they needed for whatever thing. But those bags have outlived well, their service life. 
And right? it was something so their what bodies are... just did anyhow, right? Like we can't right. all, like the body keeps the score of the book I haven't read, but everyone loves it, except he's a little sus, I think, the author. <laughs> um, I, you know, epigenetics, 100%, inter, intergenerational trauma, 100%. And yet how are, how are Black people in America, like, even still alive if there's not been any metabolizing already going on because the trauma has also aggregated? It's not the same bag. Like, we've mm -hmm. added trauma. We've added shit to that bag <laughs> over the last four right? years. So. And the thing is, we so want to move on. We're like so impatient to move on without fully airing the wound. Yes. And that's the part that is so like, I mean, to me, honestly, that was what was the most triggering about last June when, every, when this white awakening is what I call it, the white mm -hmm. awakening happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How did you racism. hold your tongue? <laughs> I did not hold my Good. tongue very well. Please I don't ever hold say. your tongue. Please <laughs> like, don't. But I did, like, I literally had a physiological reaction and my blood pressure spiked. For months, I had to take medication. I had to go, I, which I never had to do before. Wow. Um, I did not know that. Um, but it was like, all of a sudden, people were like, we got to do something about this. We got to do something about this today. And while I'm like so excited that you were like, join the party hundreds of years late, I am, um, you know, I need you to just CTFD. Um, oh, yeah. CTFD means come the fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. For that action. Yes, cool. oh, yeah, and you may like, also really trust, trust freely. Yeah. Be strategic because yes. we have been doing this for a long time. Yes. Yeah. And you're not reinventing the wheel. Um on my side for this period of time, but this shit is about to get real, real, real. Mm -hmm. And you have not been socialized to tolerate that. Mm -hmm. So I'm um, going to yeah. go down and build up your stamina because the shit's about to come your way. Mm -hmm. yeah. I love this idea that you have of this, this uh, the, the, that for that visceral the reaction. Guts, the new viscera. Yeah, yeah. And that feels like it's so much about what it is and it drives me crazy. I'm sure you've encountered this in the mental health field as well, Brittany. And I certainly see in academic medicine when people are like, here's the problem. Let's come up with this like amazing new way to fix it in this new therapy and this new idea. And we're going to convene meetings and we're going to do all this stuff. And it's like, you know, like pe people have been Ask doing this over there for years <laughs> and years, and years. Like there's some expert out there, like you don't need to reinvent the wheel. You need to shut up and listen. Like, and just right. listen, I'm fully, I'm fully a victim of that myself. Up. I mean, oh, I yeah. Social workers, we are the biggest fixers out there. Oh, yeah. We become aware of a problem when we go out there, start fixing stuff right away. And um, and like, you know, you you become aware of it and you become impatient, but you have to pause and accept like really where we are. Right. And to do so without judgment, that is the hardest part, right? Mm. To be aware of the fact of what you have control over, to be aware of what you have absolutely no control over to be aware of what you have influence over and to look at exactly where you are and to just say, okay, this is where I am. I, it's not good. It's not bad. It is what it is. And if I am unhappy with where this is, then what is next? Yeah. Right. Instead of like getting into the shame spiral of like, why didn't right. we, I can't believe I, and right. fragility and yeah, yeah mm -hmm. it's, I, you know, I now, and th cause that shame spiral is what pushes this impatience, which ends up steamrolling the very people you're trying to help. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I really and do the, think this, it's that visceral reaction I think. People in the solution too, to include us in the solution. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're not even at the table in most places, right? Like when yeah. medical people- Nothing about us right. without us. Right, right, right. And, right. and then- even, like, There's no patients at their table. Moving to no nothing about us without us and then moving from there to nothing without us. <laughs> you know, period. <laughs> so, again, we're all each other's siblings. We, we're all of us mm -hmm. together. Um, I think so much of that visceral reaction too, where it goes back to that person saying, like, no, no, my, my grandfather was a racist, right? I'm mm -hmm. not a racist he was yeah. a racist. Like there's that visceral reaction. I think a lot of that to what we're seeing and what we're seeing now coming out of the pandemic or we're all in it together. It's, it's hard to say, no, I'm not privileged. Right. Like, or I, maybe I'm privileged in this way, but I'm not privileged in that way. Like we can have debates about that over and over and over again about how you're privileged or how you're not, or how your kids are or how they're not. Um, but we have to like 
it, that's that visceral reaction I think we have to break down and, and get out of so that we can move forward is not have those debates about who's privileged, more privileged. No, like, yes, I have privilege. Like, I, just can we acknowledge that without having that kind of visceral reaction and defensiveness? Yeah. Or how do mm-hmm. I how do I give up my privilege or how do I put my privilege to work on behalf of others? It's like you're you can do both of those things and it's not going to happen today. You know, mm-hmm. you need to work on removing your blinders, removing your unconscious bias. You need to, as Brittany's saying, like just get comfortable being uncomfortable, you know, like just feeling the feelings, living in the reality of what is. And, you know, my language word is ask God to show you the next right thing to do or the next mm-hmm. wrong thing not to do. Exactly. You know, it's very, it's very this, this repentance work is very slow because, mm-hmm. and it's not, mm-hmm. you know, we've, we've been talking at church about actually in confirmation class about individual sin and corporate sin. And for a long time, the church really only taught about individual sin, like a sin was something you did and then, or it was mm-hmm. something you failed. To do. It was a sin of omission, but, but most of the sin in the world, frankly, is not individuals doing bad things or failing to do good things. It's, mm. it's so deeply embedded in our system. It's social, it's corporate, and it's, it's, you know, it's like the luggage is the baggage. It's, it's the, the bet, and it's so hard to see. And it's, well, and, it's, and we're it's, asking us to see the air we yeah. breathe, right? We're yeah. asking ourselves to see the air we breathe, mm-hmm. the air yeah. that was provided yeah. to us. Mm-hmm. And then like, mm-hmm. you just see the O2 flying, like nobody can. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, I think that we, and, and, you know, it's, I feel a lot like, when I, I mean, and maybe this is like work. I, I feel like this is one of those things I feel really called to do. Not everybody can do it, but we should all try. But really, just this, like, I, I see you as see, identifying yourself as a non-racist person, and I'm going to take you at your word. I'm going to take you at your word. I'm going to take you at face value. And the power of just taking someone who's saying, like, you said this, I'm going to take you at your word. There's so much power in that. And it's a, and it's a, it's a privilege I'm often not afforded. Like I have to prove it. You know, Mm -hmm. when I'm in a conversation with somebody about um, police brutality or police violence or whatever, and I'm, uh, I was just talking to someone about this and he's like a wait and see, let's get all the facts kind of a person. And, you know, I'm like, I get it. Um, and um, I am a person with experiences and you can just take me at my word. Mm-hmm. You know, you can take me at my mm-hmm. word. And he was saying like the reason why people had um, such resistance to police brutality before is because, you know, with George Floyd, the photographic evidence was right in front of us. And I'm like, and what is it in the water that has said to you that I am I inherently need- not to be trusted until I can provide you with Proof. video and until there's six different I videos my different angles, personal right. experience yeah. not be enough to take. Like if I take yeah. you at face value, you afford me the possibility. And if it doesn't line up with your experience, that makes sense because we all have had different experiences. It's the same country, but it's a different America yeah. everywhere yeah. you go. Mm-hmm. So um, get curious about why does my experience look so different from yours? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm asking of you. Have you maintained relationships with any of those women from Alabama? And what, if so, what were the conversations you had um, from November 4th, whatever that was, through January 20th? Well, it's real interesting. Um, We have maintained after our project was only four weeks long. So it ended like end of January of 2017. And so we decided to make like our own little Facebook group that we kind of moderated ourselves. We, nominated a moderator from California and a moderator from Alabama and they approve each other's posts. And we tend to have very reasonable conversations from time to time. Originally we started it to have a book club and we've maybe read like five books together. I mean, we club. haven't, I mean, and not everybody read the books and you know, it's like well, typical book club. Not yeah, everybody most, reads the books. Like most them book clubs about drink it. more wine than read books. Right. <laughs> right. Well, we don't get to get, that's the thing. We don't get together. Right, so we right. might start a post and talk about the book. Um, 
but we do talk about things from time to time. It's le- because we are all like, it's not somebody's day job to generate content. Like it's, it flows a lot more organically. So we might go months with nothing. Um, we, there have been times when we've heated up a lot, like I said, and, and um, there are times when we kind of look forward to talking about things with each other because it's unlike the whole rest of the internet, like the experience of discussing yeah. something is just different. Um, so yeah, and I have a lot of affinity for them. I've never met them, uh, the folks from Alabama. I've never met any of them. Um, but you know, like one got really sick with cancer and I was worried she wasn't going to make it. Like, um, you know, one has recently become a foster parent and I'm just like watching her, her experience, like, you know, of building her family, um, just with such interest. And so I don't know how we come to know each other in this way, but we did. And so even though I haven't met them, like one person had like a really serious, um, thing happen in her marriage. And she wrote to us and said, you're the only people I can tell this. Wow. And we were like, um, what can I help you? Like, do you need help? Can I, do you need money? Do you need, you know, like we wanted to help her, Mm. you know? And so there, I think there's a certain, I mean, so it's false that you can't create intimacy online. You can, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I've known these women for like five years in a way that maybe many of their own people don't know them. And Mm -hmm. yet, you know, um, I don't, and yet we've never met. Um, wow. I know what I learned from working with them was not to edit myself. Like I did not get that until I was in that project mm-hmm. that, um, you know, one survival behavior I've had my entire life, um, or at least my verbal life, um, was to like, not make people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. To Hold be back. Aware that you will say things. And if you're uncomfortable, especially if that person is white, and if they have, a, they will ruin your reputation. They can take things away from you. They can, so, you know, you cultivate your friendships carefully. You mm-hmm. cultivate what you say. And I've always been an outspoken person anyway. And sometimes, you know, people really hope, you know, they're like, hey, that's great. What Brittany said, you know, but then I'm also the one in the crosshairs all the time. Right. So mm-hmm. if I have to say something that catches someone off in the wrong way or makes them uncomfortable, then I'm the one who gets the private conversation about, Okay. need to watch what you say. You need to be careful about what you say in public settings, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I learned that um, there was a point at which I no longer needed that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That that survival behavior had got me to this point, yes. but it's no, yes. I no longer needed it. I have, I'm a manager in my job. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty well respected. I, um, have cultivated um, a friendships that are very resilient and carry a lot of weight, you know? So like we have very deep c- connections and ties and I, um, I don't need to censor myself. So when one of the women in the project asked like, why can't black people get over it? And she, and, and before people rest the judgment about her asking that question, that's the legit authentic question she has. Um, and she knows better than to ask it of anyone. <laughs> so mm, she yeah. asked me because I'm a safe person mm, who she can ask that to. Uh, and she knows that I understand her intent. She's really trying to understand the laws of change. Jim Crow is over. Why can't people get over it? Why is it always about race? And, you know, my short answer to her was because it is always about race. Even when you're not talking about it, it's always about race. Mm-hmm. You know? It's there. Um, yeah. Not talking about it is about race. But also, like, you know, I kind of... I use this analogy about um, going for like, I've never had breast cancer, but the, um, but I know women who have, and there's a time in your life when you go for your mammograms and they're routine and they're clean and nothing happens and whatever. And then there's the time when the mammogram comes back and it's, it's not clean and you have cancer and you have to have a breast remove and you have a scar and you have chemo and you have all the things. And now you're back to being cancer free. Mm. You're no longer in that space, but you never go back to the day before you're, you, you know, never go back, back to, to, that, to that last like, clean mammogram. You're never going to buy a bra the same way. You're never going to get intimate with somebody the same way. You're ne- mm. your whole Everything has changed. The scars are still causing injury. Mm. The edema. And that everything. The 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 vigilance. Is it going to come back? Yeah. Right. 
And so and you have to be um, vigilant. I mean, that that part of the metaphor really works too. Like you have to be vigilant against right. this invasive thing that's threatening to kill you. Right. And has killed so many other people. So yes. like being non-vigilant is mm-hmm. not it's not a myth. Mm-hmm. You really not have to do it. Yeah. Um and so I, you know, I said, so just because you change the laws and Jim Crow racism isn't over doesn't mean that the scars aren't continuing to cause injury. Mm-hmm that the scars suddenly went away. We didn't just reset to the time before race was invented in 16, you know, it's not that. And now and we she have new, said, new Jim Crow. <laughs> new, new, new right? Jim Crow. Oh, guys, we just reinvented it, right? Yeah. yeah. And so she, and she, it for some, for that metaphor, it, she got it, mm. you know? But Good. like, Wonderful. that was, the, but it took me a while for me to even be willing to say it. Mm-hmm. Like I had to have a moment. I took a whole work day. 12 full hours to be like, can I answer her question? And then I was like, what do I have to lose? She's not even going to ruin my Thanksgiving. I don't know her. She doesn't know my, you know, she's Mm -hmm. not my boss. She's not my spouse. Mm -hmm. She's not a close friend. I can just tell her the truth. And she either doesn't like it Mm -hmm. and move the fuck on and get off Facebook or she has a moment Mm -hmm. and goes, Mm -hmm. oh, and it fortunately the latter happened, but there have been times when I've engaged and it's been one of those things where it bounces back and blows back on me. And I'm like, Oh, pause. I'm off Facebook. Facebook mm-hmm. taught me like, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, there is value and not value and power in not having to like have the right answer right then and there. In fact, it was one of the reasons I was reluctant to be in it. I didn't want to be in the space with people who are about to deny my experience. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah. I had my whole life. For that. I don't need to, volunteer mm-hmm. on my spare time for it. Um, <laughs> they were like, no, it's, I could be cuddling like, my kids and watching a movie. That's right. <laughs> for real. But um, when they said, no, it's not in person, it's on Facebook. There was so much power in somebody saying something. We had a visceral, we meaning like a whole bunch of California, because of mm-hmm. course we were back channeling to each other. We were like, what the, did you see what so-and-so said? <laughs> and then, but we would tweeting. take the whole work day. We would go to work. Go yeah. do something else. You have asynchronous. a whole yeah. it and think you can about your whole brain. You could like let your reptilian brain survival calm right. down and like you could engage other parts of your brain. What yeah. do I want respond to respond instead of react? How right? do I want to or be have heard? the reaction? Have the full reaction? Right? Like have yeah. time exactly. to feel the full reaction and process it, right. and then respond. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then choose the- to engage or not to engage. Mm-hmm. And what do I want? How do I want to be heard? What do I want them to say? What's the message I want to communicate? And mm-hmm. often in that time frame, somebody else went in and did the hard work. Mm. And I can just be like, Bless like, but there was something about like the pressure that gets experienced when you are in that moment. That's why people don't do it. That's why people don't try to have difficult conversations because they're so afflicted by their own perfectionism. They're afraid of doing it wrong. And so really like the idea that you can slow down and just notice the visceral reaction that's just occurred. Mm-hmm. having a reaction to it. I don't even know if I have vocabulary for it just yet, but I, d- I just having a reaction to what you said and I need to sit with it some more. Mm-hmm. But there's uh-huh. literally nothing wrong with saying that in the space. That's what I came to learn from that. Thank I learned you. from that experience. I don't have to edit myself. I can say what's really happening for me, even if I don't have vocabulary for it. Uh-huh. And that gives other people permission to do it too. Mm. That's amazing. That's such an important spiritual practice and mental health practice mm-hmm. and emotional intelligence practice, right? Like, thank you mm-hmm. for that reminder. I want to make a um, it to one other thing, Brittany, that you have done multiple times in this, and you probably don't even notice you do it because you do it so consistently and gracefully. It's something I'm, I've been bringing up over and over recently, I feel, in work with people is the power of that word and over and mm-hmm. over, right? Not, but mm-hmm. not, there's no, but here. It's not, I'm saying, well, you know, that may have been mm-hmm. your experience, but this is my experience. Mm-hmm. Yes. That may have been your experience and this is my experience. Right. And uh, can we, can we just sit with that? Like you said, we might just have to sit with that for a long time because they're so right. drastically different experiences. One does not negate the other. Right. Mm-hmm. And the answers don't flow from us choosing a side 
the answers flow when we sit together with it. Yes. There's this myth that the world is not big enough for all of our experiences, but it is actually happening. They mm -hmm. are actually, it already it is big enough. It seems to be big enough. It it's hasn't, already hasn't, blown, hasn't blown up yet. <laughs> it's literally just now happening right. right now, right? All of our experiences are already happening. There's this myth that for some reason, God's love is like, limited Finite. to this one particular yep. experience or whatever, but it's already happened. How can all these people around the world believe that God loves them? And yet we have this mm -hmm. like totally different experience. Mm -hmm. So it can't be that uh, one person is right. And we're all like mistaken. So I just feel like that there, if we take the space and the time to sit with that visceral thing mm -hmm. that just happened and then this is where faith comes in, right? So like, I have to say my relationship with God, we're complicated. We're complicated. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, but I Facebook do have status. Facebook right. status is complicated with God. Right. I, we do have, um, we do have, um, I do have faith. I've always had some faith. I've always been basically optimistic. I've always believed that um, because I know the story, my dad has given me the gift of genealogy research. And so he, I know a lot of stories about my ancestors, which is amazing. And there's a lot that I don't know, but I, what I'm aware of, even if I don't know the details is the sacrifice that they made plans for us, that they had dreams for us, even though they didn't know who we were. Right. Mm -hmm. And everybody's ancestors has that. They all did something Mm -hmm. to support the survival of their line with some so that maybe in the future. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. So sometimes even when my capital F faith is waning, like my little F faith is like, well, at least the ancestors made it so that I could sit here mm. and sit with this person with this totally other experience. I am not in danger in this moment. Mm. You know, I am not in danger of being lynched. I am not in danger, but I can sit with person with this totally different experience and we can wait mm. for an answer from something bigger than us and when it yeah. comes it will be a visceral it's a new visceral experience for both of us mm -hmm. new for all of us. right it. yeah this is why you're such a great social worker and this is why you're <laughs> such a great mom it's that you know like moving out of fight or flight survival mode, getting a bigger right. picture, being patient through the pain, mm -hmm. teaching up, modeling for other people how to do that. When you're stuck in that space, that's not a solution space, right? I remember one time, one of my, it was, a, I had a supervisor who was covering a different office. So she was totally out of her element. And she was really frustrated because there was a problem that they couldn't, they didn't have a solution to. And so the worker came to a worker, one of the social workers came to her and was like, I have this problem and I need a solution. And the supervisor was like, I don't know the solution. We don't, I, we can't solve this problem. And then the worker calls me and she was really upset. Like the supervisor just told me we can't solve this problem. And then I was like, well, tell me what the problem is. And so she told me and she laid out all the different reasons why the thing that couldn't happen, couldn't happen, that needed to happen, couldn't happen. And I was like, oh, that is a really hard problem. And she was like, yeah. And I, so like the supervisor should have an answer. And I was like, Ooh, I can see why you would think that. And I was like, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Buy in some time. That is a really good gonna, question. I'm going to get back to that. that. <laughs> but I said, we're going to wait 30 minutes. Let's come yeah. together in 30 minutes. Yes. And yeah. she was like, what the hell? Like, why are we waiting 30 minutes? For What's yeah. going to happen in 30 minutes? Because so I, was like, I, I don't have the answer. answer. Right. Yeah. But someone's going to share I have no idea what's going to happen in 30 minutes. What I do know is we will not be here now, mm -hmm. right oh, here, right God. now. We are super stuck. None of us has a solution. We do not know what's going on. And so if we just stop trying to solve this problem right now, which seems to be our biggest problem is that we're trying to solve this problem right now. <laughs> and we do not have what we need. Let us see what happens in 30 minutes. And she was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> and so, Literally 20 minutes later, I kid you not, a supervisor calls me. I have an idea. I figured it out. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. And then I just talked to the worker and she's going to do this other thing. So I think we solved the problem. I was like, great. Good work, people. All right. My work, <laughs> My work here is done. <laughs> and they were like, thank you so much. And all I did was say, let's, let's wait. Let's wait 30 minutes. 
The biggest problem was we were trying to solve the problem right now. Right. Yeah. We don't need to solve that That's problem right now. Maybe we don't need to solve the problem right now. I think it brings us full circle back to like what all three of us were saying and maybe feeling in this moment is like, let's just wait. Let's just slow down. Like this has been a year. Like we, mm-hmm. everyone has been through. And yes, everyone, I, I love that expression. We've all been in the same ocean, but no, we have not all been in the same boat. <laughs> so like we need to take some time to assess and let's just wait. And and you can have had your experience and I can have had mine and we need some time to metabolize this and figure out where to go from here. Let's not just rush back to the way things have been yeah. for so, so long. This is not new. And be open. Not new. Be open to being mm-hmm. impacted by other people's experiences. Be mm-hmm. open to being impacted by people who have had no exposure to this pandemic at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people who yeah. have been devastated by it. Yeah. Like that's yeah. when it doesn't align, that's where we're like, oh, mm-hmm. it can't, be. So- can't be, but it can. So mm-hmm. first, Brittany, come back anytime you have anything you want to say to anyone who listens to this podcast, because you have an open invitation because you're wonderful and we want all of your pearls of wisdom. Well, and I already um, have like five topics that I'm going to email you that I yeah. want you to come back and talk about. One thing we didn't get to talk about at all is the people the folks you work with and what life has been like for them. We don't really have time today, but um, partly because I suspect our audience is mostly white and middle-class and not, mm-hmm. you know, not the people who are really in distress that you're working with. Um, I don't want to do this as like class. Oh, I'm going to stop you right now. No, hey, yeah. let me stop you right now. Um, so um, child maltreatment happens amongst all communities. Mm-hmm. It is not just about poor people of color, white middle-class people, um, also experience child maltreatment. Um, wealthy white people also experience child maltreatment. So what what is different is that our society has decided that they're good families and we tend to look away from it, but those children are still distressed and in danger and need intervention. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, black and brown families are still exposed to surveillance and monitoring by communities mm-hmm. and systems. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. so they get over-reported, they get over... Um, Pathologized, et cetera, et cetera. All right. So you gave me a number six to add to my list of things. Thank you for right. that. So what I will say, thank what you, I will say you. is that yeah. um what I am experiencing with the families is that um they we are seeing fewer reports from yes. mandated reporters yes. because they're not fewer coming in, we don't see them. Any kind of intense surveillance mm-hmm. and monitoring that they have been under before. And we are seeing a lot of families experiencing a lot of distress. Um, so a lot more domestic violence and it's happening at all levels. So a lot more domestic violence. So that's, I, I knew that was the case and it, it's, it hurts my heart to hear you say that out loud because you have a pipeline, like, you know, what's going on. So we'll put a pin in this for another day, but um, what can anyone listening pray for the families Mm. in distress? What's the prayer? The prayer is that they, that the communities around them rise up to meet them. Mm. The prayer is that the communities and the helpers um, acknowledge the inherent resilience. So we're not building resilience, we're awakening it. Mm. Because you didn't get to be here on today because you didn't have resilience. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. If you survived the birth canal mm-hmm. and you made it to a year of life, somebody has some resilience in there. <laughs> right. Because babies don't come out feeding themselves and mm-hmm. parents don't come out knowing how to do all this. So it's really like if we assume that the, in, the inherent resilience is there and it may present in a way that's unfamiliar to you, but it's there. Look for it. Then, yeah, yeah. Awaken it. Awaken it. Yeah. And my prayer for the people who are in it is that you see it in yourself. Mm-hmm. That in yourself, like we may have experienced things that have caused us damage, but we are not broken. Yes. That there is something within us. If we made it to today, there is something that can be awakened in us that can help us make it to tomorrow. So my prayer is that everybody experiences that. 
Amen. Every day. And you don't have to know what mm. that's going to be. You just have mm. to know that it's there somewhere. And maybe we just wait 30 minutes and the <laughs> answer will That's only a great podcast closer. That's a sermon I hope you preach in our church someday. Because <laughs> we all need that. We all need to hear. Like you just you spoke directly, you answered something directly in my soul. Holy Spirit just like chills all over me right now. Hmm. I love you, Brittany Walker Pettigrew. I'm so uh, grateful for you. Thank you, thank Brittany. You, you, re- you realize this whole podcast thing was just a ruse for me to get to spend more time with you. After <laughs> we joined our first group and I was like, I need to spend more time with that, Brittany. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, it's been really lovely. I mean, I just, it's, I love talking about this stuff with people who are curious about it. So yeah. I can't get enough. Thank you for all the tremendous work you do everywhere in the world from inside your home to everywhere you go online and in the world. And I hope to see you in real life someday soon and give you a super strong hug. Vaccinations on the horizon. Woo! I'm on the back. You're back. I'm back. Maybe I'll bump bump on on going Saturday. For one or two? Is one or two on? For one. one. Although I might be getting Johnson & Johnson next week. I think I just got a call about that. We'll see about that. We'll see about that. Um, Blessings on you both. Have a beautiful birthday, Elle. Have a beautiful day, Brittany. It's already been one. Yay. And take care, everyone. You take care of yourselves wherever you are. We love you, too. Thank you.